I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. In the 1960s, Chicago soul singer Gene Chandler had almost 20 hit songs, but one towers above all of them, Duke of Earl. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Gene Chandler talks with us about touring in the Jim Crow South, transitioning from performer to producer, and the lasting legacy of the Duke of Earl. Plus, we'll review In Between, the new album by New Jersey's legendary Feelies. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, Jim, we are going to review the new album by The Feelies. Now, this is a band that takes its time between albums. It's their first in six years. Only uh, six albums, Greg, in 40 years. That's later in the show. But first, Gene Chandler, the Duke of Earl. As I walk through this world, nothing can stop the Duke of Earl. Obviously, that is the single Duke of Earl, recorded by Gene Chandler in 1961. As a million seller, it was a top hit. One of the best known songs of that era. I think one of the best pop or rock songs ever. But Gene uh, did much more than that tune. He went on to record a dozen albums and over a hundred singles, as well as becoming a producer. Yeah, Jim, he came out of the tradition of doo-wop in Chicago that included groups like the Flamingos and the Spaniels, and he worked closely with a number of Chicago soul legends, including Curtis Mayfield and Jerry Butler. Later on in his career, as you mentioned, he went on to produce other artists. So we started our conversation asking Gene about when he knew music was going to be his life. When you're a youngster, you have a whole bunch of things in your head you want to do, and you know everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it ends up being something maybe you thought you were going to be, but you but you didn't. But in any event, uh, uh, high school is where uh, I guess I found the talent. I got with a group in high school a group called the Gay Tones. And uh, I, do you remember uh, McKee Fitzhugh, a, D, a DJ? I, I remember the name. He was on yeah. WGES. Yeah. Mm. Okay, and he gave a citywide contest uh, from the high schools. The high school had their private amateur show. Mm-hmm. And whoever won that amateur show represented that school against all the other high schools. And finally, when they gathered everybody and all the contests were over with, they had the big show. I can never forget that for a lot of reasons. One, I had an abscess. Ooh, my jaw hurt. was swollen. Yeah. And you got to sing. I got to yeah. sing. Mm. And all these people from all over the city of Chicago was there to see this uh, final contest because mm-hmm. they came from the different schools. The place mm. was packed. Yeah. And... Uh, we had to take pictures, so of course I took it on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> not to see the swelling. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. The guy said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to sing. Mm. I'm not going to miss this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? To make a long story short, the Gaytones won the contest All from, right. from Inglewood High School. Mm-hmm. My darling dear, love you all the 
actually were doing some school illegal things like oh, singing okay. in the hallway when we should have been in class. Well, they got the great acoustics in the in, with yeah. the lockers and tell the, yeah. me about it. You mm-hmm. know, or in the bathroom, yeah, the, the bathroom. acoustics or what have you. But we had other people cutting class just to hear us. But the gay tones, we used to have to run from the assistant principal because he was, <laughs> you know, chasing us out of hall. After a while, he would say, "I saw you. I saw you." Well, he couldn't prove it. Yeah, we mm-hmm. were denying it, of course. Yeah. So then he started wearing a camera around his neck. <laughs> <laughs> now, see if the, you know if he was still around, those pictures would be worth something today. Yeah, yeah. When all of this occurred, in my neighborhood in Inglewood, there was a group there called the Duques. Mm-hmm. And the Duques was jealous because uh, they needed a lead singer. Mm. And they said, you live in this neighborhood. Those guys live at all these other places. <laughs> in so finally, I joined the, the Duques. I left the gay tones and went with the Duques in the neighborhood. I had to face them every day. Yeah. 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 In the neighborhood. Yeah. It worked out, of uh, course. It worked out. Now, this was a great era in Chicago music. Uh, the vocal groups were ascendant uh, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a number of labels putting out this kind of music, uh, local, locally-based labels. All the doo-wops. VJ yeah. and chess and things like that. Uh, how did you sort of see yourself fitting into this? I mean, was getting the recording contract and getting that record out and being played on the radio, was that the, was that the ambition all along? Uh, uh, what happened is uh, the Duques, the neighborhood group I joined, we began to sing in a lot of clubs, and sometimes we had three gigs a night. Mm. We'd run to this social club because they had their, their party and run to this one. And we wasn't making a lot of money, maybe $10, $15 a piece from each one of the places and added up and all the guys worked. So that was some extra money on the weekend. Yeah. I left the group and went to the service. They promised to hold my spot. And three years later, about three months before I was coming home, they had gotten a recording contract mm. and they wanted the people that owned the record company, a guy by the name of Mr. Carl Davis and uh, Bill Shepard. Mm-hmm. They owned the company and they said they didn't want to wait because they picked, the group for the lead singer that they had with them mm-hmm. at the time. Finally, they convinced them to wait. And of course I came home and I sung. I was actually coming home to be a single while I was in the service. I went around to a lot of officers clubs. Mm-hmm. I was in special service and I sung for these. And I said, God, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to split Sing- the $15. Yeah, right, yeah. right. I don't have to split, split any money. But, uh, I, I, when I came home, they had a recording contract. Mm-hmm. I sung for Carl and Bill and they fell in love with me, and so mm-hmm. I ended up back with the group, and that's when we went in the studio and recorded our first record called The Girl is the Devil. Mm-hmm. She's trying to make a monkey out of me, yeah. <laughs> but I love her so. <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of commas, and then, oh, yeah, and by the yeah, way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just so this, to be clear. She's a devil, a cute little devil. The girl is a devil, 
This is 1961. You're in the recording studio. Yes. And um, then y- your biggest hit comes soon after. Um, well, after that first session. Mm-hmm. The next recording session is where we recorded a song called Night Owl. And a song called The Duke of Earth. The guy who had the first right of refusal to take our records around the country, he loved Night Owl and he turned down the Duke. So VJ Records had given some money for the publishing on Night Owl. They wanted to hear it, and in the process, they said, well, what else did you record? And that's when uh, Calvin Carter, the A&R director, he was uh, Vivian Carter's brother. Vivian was the V in the VJ. In the VJ, mm-hmm. yes. Right, and Jimmy was, was the, the J, J, her husband. Uh, but her brother, Calvin Carter, was the A&R director for VJ Records. He heard the song, and he said, well, who has that? He said, well, can we buy it? And he said, yeah, but it's the same lead singer, and he's with the Duquesne signed mm. up. <laughs> okay. Uh, we straightened all of that out. Uh, they gave me a choice of staying with the group or they were going to put somebody with the Duke. Mm. Since I wrote the Duke of Earl, I decided now is my chance to go as a single. Right. And the group was kind of upset, but uh, I thought it was the best thing to do, and as time went by, here I am today, it was the best thing. Uh, but Calvin called to uh, Europe, to Abner, who was running the VJ Records. Hewitt Abner was his name. He was the president. And asked him about buying this song, Duke of Burl. He said, if you call me all the way to Europe to buy a song, just go on and, and buy it. Uh, <laughs> he happened to be over there getting the deal for the first Beatle Records. Right, VJ Records. Yeah, he was with Brian Epstein, and he made the first deal for America for the mm-hmm. Beatle Records. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, whoa, closer. Let me whisper in your ear. Say the word. Abner was really smart. He kind of waited and let Capitol do all the big promotion and everything. And once the Beatles took off, they were buying anything was the Beatles. So right. Abner Including VJ, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So Abner stopped putting his records out, and that's when they became big. And, of course, you know, VJ was the, also the, the first company to record the Four Seasons. Right. Uh, and it was the first black company to have uh, a white artist on a, a black label. But you know the success of the Four Seasons. Right. Yeah, right. Okay, so Huge. It, it, everything took off for them. 
Um, there are not many songs in the history of popular music that, that are more well-known by everybody, mm -hmm. all right? An interesting question when you're talking to someone who wrote a song like that, whether it's Kurt Cobain and Smells Like Teen Spirit or, mm -hmm. or, or you and Duke okay. of Earl, did you know? You know, when you put the pen down to paper after you'd sketched this out or whatever, uh, did you know that this was, this was a song? Yes, sir, I... I must say that we thought it was, but we knew nothing about a million seller. Mm -hmm. uh, we put it together in my uh, uh, home, which was about maybe four blocks from uh, our manager. My mother came out from the kitchen and say, when did you all put that together? She said, just nice. She said, that sounds good. Mm. And we felt good about it. Mm. Actually, it, uh, it wasn't Duke. It was do, D-O. Mm. But I said, that's kind of silly to have a song saying do, 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 do. You know? <laughs> and I don't know where it came from, but I just said... Let's say Duke. Yeah. You know, I guess yeah. from watching movies of England and all mm -hmm. that kind yeah. of thing. And uh, it was a guy in the group. His name was Earl. And uh, so we said Duke of Earl. <laughs> but okay. actually, there's not really a Duke of Earl. It yeah. is not because I made it. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but you were a Duke <laughs> yeah. or an Earl. Yes, it's an Earl or a Duke. Right. An Earl of something or a Duke of something. Yeah. In any event, we ran around the house and said, we got a million sellers. A million sellers. She said, all right, let me hear it. Because she wrote all our songs for us. And after we sung it about three times for her, she said, Gene, don't get mad at me, but I'd like to change one line in there. I don't know what she took mm. out. I can't remember. Yeah. But the line she put in, we will walk through my dukedom and paradise we will share. Paradise we will share. Yes, I <laughs> that's a good line. That's, that's, that's a good line. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good line. Yeah. What what I love is the way um, that song took off. I mean, it's it's had a life through decades. I mean, people have sampled that song. You know, uh, Cypress Hill groups like that. How do you feel about the way um, your music has been? appropriated by, by the hip-hop generation. I feel it's a great thing. I made more money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave you licensing and uh, publishing. Yeah. Well, and all you that. can't yeah. damage the Duke of Earl. Yeah. <laughs> it's what it is, right? Because yeah. mm -hmm. uh, in the hip-hop generation, they, they asked me to come back and do the Duke of Earl with some rap in it. Mm. I told them no. So you're a national act at that point. You went from a kid that people knew in Chicago, maybe, to this national thing. Correct. And, and what uh, was that like at, at a very young age? What was that like for you? Well, actually, I could have capitalized on it much more if I had uh, known what I know today. Uh, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was like it was like shocking to me. All of a sudden, I was in demand around the country, and I'm flying here. I remember going to make the movie Don't Knock the Twist. The night before, most of the acts, Chubby Checker, Dee Dee Sharp, the Dobells, and myself, we did a performance at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And it was the next day we flew to do the movie in, in Los Angeles. Mm. But uh, there were like maybe 30, 40 different people out there with the entire Duke of Earl outfit on. <laughs> wow. Because I remember when the limo pulled up, I heard the guy say on the gate, 
Now the real Duke is coming now, and they start <laughs> rushing it. <laughs> 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 but they had these top hats and capes on. Yeah. I didn't realize uh, that that was such a fabulous thing. I was just excited because people wanted to dress up like myself. So, so just to clarify, Gene, in the 1962 film called Don't Knock the Twist, you wore the same costume you wore on the Duke of Earl album cover with that cape, that top hat, that monocle. That outfit has since gone down in rock and roll history. And, Gene, I was really hoping you were going to wear that <laughs> so outfit So you wanted today. people to start rushing me and throwing me down <laughs> like they do the clowns. And oh, right, right. No, no, no. That wouldn't have been right. Top yeah. hat, cape, and No, cane. no, no, no. We'll, get, we'll get you some security. Well, Gene. you know, actually, that's not the way they wanted me to have the cover of that album. Hmm. They had me uh, in the studio dressed up like a minute man. You know how the minute man had the triangle hats on? Yeah, yeah. And the tight stocking legs mm-hmm. coming up like in England. What's the, the connection there? I don't get blouse. it. So they even so tried so to put one of those wigs on me, the gray wig. The powdered the, wig? Yes. Oh, no. Yeah. And, I, and so I was leery of it. But when I saw the negative, mm. I said, no, no, no. I want to be a modern dude. <laughs> Actually, I took the negative from him. Yeah. The only one that they really had. And I still have it today. Uh-huh. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but do People you have been the trying monocle to get and the cape? Me. Yeah. I All have right. the same original cape. All right. That mm-hmm. I started with. Mm-hmm. Top hats have changed, mm-hmm. and I, I let go of the monocle because I couldn't perform well on stage trying to squinch my <laughs> yeah, eye and yeah, hold yeah, the yeah. monocle. I've never understood <laughs> why anybody would have a monocle. Yeah, right, because you had to squinch it in, yeah. you know, between the top here and down here. And I just it's worse than having an abscess. Thing, no, that's got to go. I ended yeah. up with the top hat, the cane, yeah. and yeah. the cape. And put it over any kind of outfit because I had other songs to sing. I think I think and, after James yeah. Brown's cape and uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, uh, you know, cape uh, that's like the most famous cape in the history of all of music. Well, actually, that was the first cape worn. Out yeah, there. even they, before James Brown put the you. little short cape in his act. Yeah, because uh, I had the long cape, the, yeah. the ones that they have in England, mm-hmm. and uh, I still have the original cape. One after a short break gene chandler tells us about working with curtis mayfield and about his transition into producing other artists later we're going to review the new record by the new jersey rockers the feelies that's in a minute on sound opinions from wbez chicago and prx she's going to ruin my happy home with a man's imitation oh, Well, I've got another back home Who's the beat in my heart? I never thought no one else Could ever tear us apart Imitation. I know I've got to be strong. I've got to fight this all alone. So afraid for what I must do. I've got to hate my woman for you. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. 
And our guest today is the legendary soul singer Gene Chandler. His biggest hit, Greg, of course, was Duke of Earl, 1961. Immediately afterward, though, he had a bit of a dry patch hit-wise. It was none other than Curtis Mayfield who helped him out of it. I asked Gene about his work with the great Curtis Mayfield. Well, uh, Curtis was an extraordinary writer. He falls in that category with Smokey, R. Kelly, uh, all these uh, great uh, songwriters that became artists at the same time, Isaac Hayes and that kind of thing. Uh, He was kind of my salvation after the Duke of Earl. Mm -hmm. Duke of Earl was more or less a a novel-type song. Yeah, hard to follow up. Yeah, it's, it's still the biggest song that I ever had in my life. But Curtis was your salvation after the Duke. Yeah. Curtis came with uh, 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 Rainbow, was the very first one that I did of his. The company did not like Rainbow. They thought it went too long before the break and all of that. And uh, I told him, I said, well, okay. To make a long story short, I said to them, if you don't like it, make it the B-side of the record that was coming out, which was called uh, You Threw a Lucky Punch. Mm. It was the answer to Mary Wells, you beat me to the punch. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But when I hit the road, I never, you threw a lucky punch, it was going up the charts, but I would never sing it. Mm. I kept singing Rainbow. Mm-hmm. And the audience kept going crazy and hollering more and more, and I would come back and I would add on to it till finally I added a part two, mm. making it up as I went each time, and then I finally found a combination. And I say that because it came out in 63, in 65, I did a live album at the Regal Theater. Mm-hmm. That time at the Regal, young man went out and made a name for himself. He's been on every record-breaking show in the Regal Theater in the last two years. Ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show, how about a nice warm round of applause to welcome Mr. Gene Chandler. And when the company heard that, they said, Gene, we're thinking about putting out Rainbow again. I said, we just hit a big hit off of it. And they said, well, uh, uh, listen to it and the women were hollering you cool daddy and blah 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 and you could hear all these you know yeah So we released the Rainbow 65 Live Part 2. <laughs> and it took that off took again. Off, yeah. Now, I'm telling you this story because I'm the only artist, we've checked it out several times, that ever had three hits off of the same song mm-hmm. with the artist himself singing that song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1980, uh, two years prior to that, we had begun to put an oldie from the 60s on each new album. Mm. And somebody said, it's time for Rainbow. I said, we had a hit off of it twice. Twice already, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, again, uh, Rainbow, some of the jocks, this is 15 years later after 1965. Yeah. They, Rainbow 80, they saw the title and they started playing it and that song took off again. Again. So I've yeah. had three hits off of Rainbow. You got you got to shoot for four. <laughs> Come on, Gene. One no, more time. No. One more time. <laughs>
Well, it's a remarkable because you were able to sustain yourself. A lot of artists hit a wall, you know, in the you know the, the 60s, 50s, 60s artists hit a wall in the late 60s, early 70s when the music was uh, changing, and then again in the late 70s, early 80s when disco came along and all these artists were complaining. You just kind of kept riding the wave and figuring out a way to, to make things be- happen. That's because we were getting ready to record an album. And I noticed that the radio stations was playing nothing but disco. Mm -hmm. You could hardly get a slow song through. And I told uh, Carl, I said, I think we need to get into that disco thing. Otherwise, we're going to just sit back and wait Mm -hmm. and just run its course. So I picked out one of the songs I had in my publishing company, and uh, it was called uh, Get Down. Mm -hmm. And we changed the beat into a disco beat, and I had another hit. And, and it's that music uh, uh, coming to people that helps uh, forward the civil rights movement, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, 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 I can't hate black people. I love this music, right? It was mm-hmm. a big part of it. Okay. But also, you know, Mavis Staples and the Staples singers being so political in the same days and Curtis and what he was doing with soul and politics. You know, do, do you feel like, uh, you know, the music that you were making helped change race relations in this country? Yeah, because uh, when people like music, if it's good, they don't care who it comes from. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they have the separate charts, R&B charts and the pop chart. So if you go pop with yeah. your R&B record, then you've gone up to pop charts. Uh, I understand it to a certain extent. As uh, as time went on, I used to think, I mean, what are they doing that for? You know, separating it, what have It's you. all just music. Yeah, it's all music. When I stopped performing, 99% of the shows that I was doing, it was a more of a white audience mm-hmm. than it was blacks. That's just the way it was. They loved the Duke of Earl. I just think that <clears throat> sports, uh, music, these type of things, if you're good, the people want to see you perform. Mm-hmm. And it's just as simple as that. I wanted to follow up on what Jim was uh, asking about, uh, you know, African-American artists touring, you know, in the 50s, 60s. And I know you were, you had to be playing out a lot because you hear the, the man Gene Chandler singing on Rainbow 65. That audience is just screaming their lungs out because this guy knows how to deliver a show. And you don't do that by just playing occasionally. You must have been out there a lot. What yeah. was that like? Being a, it's not, it wasn't an easy life, especially for African-American artists during that era. What well, was we it like? Mostly weekends now, but during that area of the 60s, you could work from one town to another in one state mm. because uh, they weren't used to having a lot of talent down there. And so we worked all week. Mm-hmm. as well as the weekends. I mean, yeah. it's a little different now, but uh, they would come out uh, in those southern states to see you. So. But Mavis Staples talks, Greg wrote her biography. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mavis talks about not being able to stay 
certain places. And, not, being and getting, to, not being able to stay at certain hotels. Oh, not yeah. Being able to we eat had at to restaurants. stay what they call a black motel. Mm. And there was a big sign up there. And I remember going down into Virginia, and and we always sit in this black motel. You know, they had mm. a, uh, one light in the ceiling, no television, no telephones. You had to go out in the hall for the telephone, right. and you had to go out in the hall for the bathroom. Uh, and one day I came in, and the cab driver, he said, well, why are you going there? And I said, that's you know why I'm going there, because he was a black cab driver. Mm. He said, but you can stay in the Triangle Motel. Nice. And I used to see that sign flashing. I'm saying, I got all this money in my pocket. How come I can't I stay can't there? Stay there. Yeah. You know. And so I said, well, you take me there. He took me there. I said, now open the door. Mm. He opened the door. And I went up those steps and went into the hotel and, and got a room. So I'm sitting in the room. I called my mother on the phone. When you first started <laughs> in the room. Yeah. yeah. I said, I'm in the room. I, and that was the time they had all the controls in the bed, on the bed. Vibrating fingers? Yeah. So I said, I can do the volume from here. My bathroom is in this. He said, boy, stop playing with me. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm standing in the Triangle Motel in Virginia. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a happy time when all yeah. those things kind of changed. And it's going to be good time. Obviously, you're aware of Black Lives Matter and movements like that now. You know, it seems to me like these are echoing a lot of what happened, you know, back when you were touring, when you were an artist out on the road um, facing, you know, in the middle of the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. How much or how little has changed then from your perspective? Oh, quite a bit. Quite a bit. I mean, you can stay in any hotel now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's Mm -hmm. been a tremendous uh, uh, movement in the right direction. Uh, there's still pockets of resistance and people have their feelings or how they want to feel. And some of them you can't change. It's in their system. But uh, I think that this world has come a long way, or this country, I should say, mm. a long way toward uh, everybody coming together. That's what our 44th yeah. president said on the way out. Oh, yeah. Fellow yeah. of Chicago. And- a long ways, you know. Yeah. I think when he became president, it became more of an issue because a, a black man was now in the White House. Mm-hmm. And there were some people trying to show, well, I didn't vote for him, and so they kept their little racial things going. Silly stuff, but I don't pay any attention to it. I just keep straight ahead. Cold, cold eyes upon me, they stare. People all around me, and they're all in fear. They don't seem to want me, but they want You also uh, transitioned into the producer uh, role uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, executive. You, you went behind the scenes a little bit. And uh, 
you were successful in, in that regard as well. That yes. uh, You know, I always loved Backfield in Motion when I was a little kid because mm-hmm. I was a big football fan. And you picked that song, I guess, I started for, for my own, I started my own record company, and uh, there were other companies that wanted me to take over their label and run it. And this particular label was out of St. Louis called Bamboo Records. I, I came in and took over the label. I got rid of most of the acts and then kept a few. And, uh, of course, Mel and Tim with Backfield in Motion was one of them. 1969. Did you, did you enjoy that as much? Yes, because it was the business I was in. I was successful with the Duke, and I wanted to exploit my talents farther. Mm. Uh, and uh, when I started getting hits out of it, you know, because it was 1970 when I had uh, Backfield in Motion uh, and uh, Groovy Situation. Mm. I recorded that on myself for Mercury Records. About girl. I'm gonna make a mind if it takes all night. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? I'm that girl. I'm gonna make a mind if it takes all night. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Good evening, sweet darling. May I ask your name? You know, so many people, we talk about producers all the time, and we've talked to many of them on our show. What does a producer do? What did you see your role as when you were sitting on the other side of the glass, you have an artist in front of the microphone? What were you doing? Well, I heard an artist that uh, I like, and I thought I could should record him. And uh, I was the producer, so I produced the record. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yeah, but people, people don't even know what that means, you know? Well, it, well, it's the same thing in the movies. Uh, you'll see produced by this person or producer or mm-hmm. executive producer, you know. Uh, but in the music business, there's a guy that sits behind the knobs and he's listening for you to make mistakes so he can correct them, mm-hmm. uh, listening to the music to make sure it's right. Mm-hmm. He hires the, the arranger. So you, you're producing. Yeah. Uh, you know. I come in with a migraine. I partied too hard last night. I'm just not feeling it. How okay. do you get the best out of me if I'm your artist? How did you inspire people? It depends upon the artist. Mm. You know, of course, I had to learn. Mm -hmm. I knew about myself, but that helped because I was an artist, too. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of knew how people felt or I could look at them and tell how they were that day as opposed to another day. Mm. Well, thanks for indulging me. Every every producer we've ever interviewed, eventually it gets to the point where we find out they're actually psychologists. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that brings up a good point. (laughs) Maybe without even knowing it or thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's what they got to do. You're sort of a novice recording artist at the time you you record Duke of Earl. I mean, you hadn't had a lot of studio experience. What did Carl Davis do to get the best out of you uh, that day? He didn't have to do much. Being a psychologist, (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't intending to do well. And so yeah. if you showed me something that wasn't correct, 
I was ready to go back to the mic and do it right. Another take. Yeah, because I wanted to hit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. So was he kind of pretty instructive in terms of, oh, this line needs to be redone? Because I know you'd have to do st- full takes straight through, right? I would listen. The only song that I ever did without one time was uh, uh, This Bitter Earth. Mm. Uh, and I was doing the Dinah Washington version. This a bitter earth. Well, what fruit it bears? What good is love that no one shares? So I was actually in the studio clowning because it was, mm. you know, it was my first tape. Yeah. And so I was clowning was warming around. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, like when it said, Lord, this bitter, bitter earth. Yeah, yeah. I kind of did from the mic and came up to the mic and I was clowning. They're never going to use this yeah. one. Lord, this bitter, bitter, bitter Be so I didn't know I was singing it that well. Mm. So when it was over with, they say, you need to come in and hear this. We think that's a good take. I say, oh, no, I'm just fooling around, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I was actually singing well and putting character and personality in yeah. without realizing I was doing it that well. Well, sometimes you think too much about yeah. something and you, yeah. You, yeah. I was uh, going to settle down and just stay at the mic, you know, like, mm-hmm. you see, I don't like to use uh, mm-hmm. headphones. I usually had one headphone on and the other one was like on my jaw mm-hmm. because I just wanted to hear all my natural stuff. I hate hearing everything through yeah. uh, the, the uh, mic, uh, the earphones. But in any event, uh, they said, take a listen to this. Mm. You might change your mind. After all. After all. I listened to it. I said, okay, we'll play that again. When I listened to it, it was a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. I can go have lunch. I did it on an album called The Two Sides of Gene Chandler. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I did a, a kind of like jazz, you know, pop song-wise. Mm-hmm. And then the other side was rhythm and blues. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the certain song turned out well. So I had an opportunity to do one song in my life that I didn't have one to. One take. One take. That's awesome. <laughs> if Gene Chandler today is talking to your 19, 18-year-old self, and you could tell him one thing. You mean like 19, 18, like I am now? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> like three years earlier, yeah. Yeah, okay. i got to tell you, man, you look you're, you look pretty good. i got to tell you, you look, you look you. better than us, quite but that doesn't take much. The people in the room right yeah. now. Um, but what would you tell that, uh, the younger self? Well, I guess it's the same thing my mother told me. Pay my taxes. <laughs> and don't throw my money away because mm. uh, I got a little excited when all the money started coming in. I was doing all kind of things I always wanted to do. So, like for instance, I could have a mansion today, but mm-hmm. uh, I decided, why would I want to pay for all of that space, yeah. that heating? Empty getting? space. Uh, and I just uh, I always think very sensible about spending money and then reinvesting it in other things. And that's where it's been for me for a while. And uh I'm, I'm doing well. Well, it's been a complete honor and pleasure having Gene Chandler on Sound Opinions. Thank you, Gene. Thank you. 
I can remember how you climb the stairs. Do you have memories about Gene Chandler or thoughts on Chicago soul or anything in the music world? Let us know. Call our hotline, 888-859-1800. Or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. When we come back, we'll share our thoughts on the new record by The Feelies. And Greg, you've got a song you can't live without for the Desert Island Jukebox. What is it? Well, Jim, we've had an epidemic of drummers who have left us far too soon, and I'm going to pay tribute to another one of them. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sometimes friends uh, stop in, and when they do, all I do is talk. I just talk, talk to them about you. Each night before I go to bed, I turn my lights down low, and I get a little, I get a little sweet music on my radio. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a little bit of In Between, the title track of the sixth album by The Feelies. Uh, That is six albums in 40 years, Greg. Mm -hmm. The Feelies have never been prolific. I've been a huge fan my entire life. I've grown up with The Feelies, an important band to me. They formed in 1976 in a suburb called Halden, New Jersey. Bill Millian and Glenn Mercer, the guitarists and vocalists of the group, first came together after meeting in high school. Their first album, 1980's Crazy Rhythms, is a masterpiece of art punk, combining the best of the Velvet Underground with the best of Brian Eno. It is a high point that I think has rarely been reached in rock and roll, and then the feelies disappear for a good long time. In 1986, they come together with a new rhythm section and a new outlook. Uh, They release an album called The Good Earth that is recorded by Peter Buck of R.E.M. The feelies are less kinetic, less crazy rhythm, and more chiming guitars. I would say that for that entire second incarnation, 1986 to 1991, the feelies helped define indie rock. But they don't have the sort of success that will greet many of the alternative bands a few years later. And they break up again, disappearing in 1991. It's not until 2008 that they reunite. I'm proud to say one of the first shows they did was on Sound Opinions Mm. live at Maxwell's, their home away from home. Now we have album number six, arriving in their 40th year as a band. It's called In Between. It was recorded uh, for the first time in Glenn's home studio. What are the feelies giving us? Let's play a track, and we'll come back in a second with our reviews. This is Turn Back Time from the feelies. The new album's called In Between on Sound Opinions. 
That is Turn Back Time from the new Feelys album, In Between. Uh, Turn Back Time, time, movement, (laughs) these are our constant themes in in Feelys music. Yes. Uh, And their music uh, perfectly encapsulates those notions. The notion of in between is such a perfect metaphor for the Feelys. You know, the idea that there's always something beyond the horizon. We're not there yet. We're we're traveling to this destination. you know, you mentioned the Feelys record from uh, the 80s, The Good Earth, uh, their most bucolic record, yeah. kind of almost a folk record in some ways, the gentler side of the Feelys. And I feel that there is some of that uh, tone in this record, uh, a little more gentle, you know, whereas the previous record was much more of a driving uh, record, uh, or a, a rock record. This is more of a folky type of record. But that doesn't mean it still doesn't move. Um, what I love about this band is its ability to sort of split the difference there. This album has the shade of mortality over it, so Glenn Mercer's lyrics, very zen, very yeah. very much uh, uh, make a plan, let it be. Everything you know? about the feelings <laughs> is elliptical, their entire career. Terse, a band that uh, says a lot with very few words and uh, very few chord changes. They speak as one voice. It is such a rare gift to have five people playing in a band for as long as the Feelies have been that they almost seem to speak as one voice, and, yeah. and you can hear it on this record. To me, Jim, what this band does better than any other band is they find that sweet spot between serenity and propulsion. Mm-hmm. There's like a feeling of tranquility in that music, and yet it is constantly moving forward to that next spot on the horizon. With a very, very unique rhythm that starts with Bo Diddley and is taken somewhere completely different by the feelies. It, it, it's syncopated. It's driven by tom-toms. They have two drummers, or a drummer and a half. Dave Weckerman, uh, who was also goes way back with the group, you know, adds percussive touches, a little tambourine, a little clave, uh, a little wood block, as Stanley Domeski, one of the great rock drummers, keeps things moving forward. Yeah, this is a buy-it record for me. Oh, it's absolutely a buy-it record, Greg. Way back in 1987, Weckerman, the percussionist, told... Uh, Jim Testa, my pal and the dean of New Jersey rock critics, being in the feelies is like living in a pyramid. Nothing ever changes, and no one ever gets older. And it's true. Nothing has Sounds ever like changed. Game of Thrones or something like that. It, you know, Dave especially is a mystical feel. All the feelies are, they live somewhere different, right? Um, uh, they are unique people, and this is a unique sound and a wonderful band that, that I'm happy to say, you know, I, I've spent 
40 years loving this group. It has never once let me down. I would tell you if it did. Honest, this record, I think, uh, uh, is is as strong as anything they've ever given us, with the exception of Crazy Rhythms. That's the masterpiece of all time. Start there, and then arguably buying this one is a very good place, and then everything else they've ever done. Two enthusiastic buy-its for In Between by the Feelies. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a tune we cannot live without. Greg, you're up. What do you got? Jim, uh, we've had a number of drummer deaths in recent weeks. We've paid tribute to Clyde Stubblefield, Yaki Liebesite of Cannes, and now I want to pay tribute to Butch Trucks of the Allman Brothers. He died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound on January 24th. Uh, raised in, in Florida, that's where he died. He uh, joined the Allman Brothers in 1969 and was a continuous member of the Allman Brothers over their 45-year span. He was the driving force in that band alongside a second drummer, J. Johanny Johansson, otherwise known as J-Mo. Butch was the freight train. Mm. J-Mo was the accents. Together, they made one of the best rhythm sections in rock for decades. There was a, an element of melody there, and there was also a command of the blues vocabulary. Uh, a lot of drummers who know their stuff say that no rock drummer mastered the blues shuffle quite as well as Butch Trucks did. The blues shuffle is basically based around triplets. It's this particular rhythmic feel. There's almost like a bounce to the step in that 12-bar blues mm. tradition that you're coming out of. And the best example of it is in Statesboro Blues, which is a song originally written by Blind Willie McTell and later covered by Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal version had a big impact on the Allman Brothers. Dwayne Allman immediately jumped on it and said, we got to do this. Mm. This is where... Dwayne's slide guitar style really came into fruition and, and basically created the guitar god reputation uh, that Dwayne Allman has had ever since. So a lot of the focus is on Dwayne, his guitar playing alongside Dickie Betts in this song. But listen to what Butch Trucks and J-Mo are doing behind him. They're just as critical to the way this, this blues song recorded originally back in the 20s, how it feels like a contemporary rock track and still feels uh, incredibly explosive and incredibly powerful because of that rhythm that Butch Trucks is providing, that shuffle rhythm. Here's Butch Trucks at his finest with the Allman Brothers on Statesboro Blues.
That is Butch Trucks on drums, dead at the age of 69 for the Allman Brothers on Statesboro Blues. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, it's one and done. It's going to be a show devoted to artists that recorded one great album and then never made another. And if you have a suggestion of an artist that gave us just one great album and then never recorded again, give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Sound Opinions is produced, as always, by Brendan Banaszak, Evan Chong, Alex Claiborne, and Ayana Contreras. Hello? Hello, girl! Who's this? This is me, and I just want to let you know I don't love you no more. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Yeah, hi guys. My name is Bill. I currently live in North Carolina. Um, I've been listening to your show on and off for a number of years. And consistently, you guys just don't get it when it comes to soul or R&B or hip hop. No, I don't love you no more. Really, I, I, I wish you would maybe broaden your opinion or um, get somebody else in there with a broader opinion. I know you're trying, and I applaud that. So good luck, and uh, happy listening in the future. Hi, this is Katie from Philadelphia. Uh, One of my favorite albums of buried treasure is from Red 40 and the last movement. The album called Seen to Feed. Definitely worth listening to. It's got a really great kind of groovy, jazzy, funky sound to it. Really very Philadelphia. Let me know what you think. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Hey guys, this is Chris from Winston-Salem and really, really enjoyed the Buried Treasures uh, episode. I'm totally going to buy my two-year-old toddler a Regrets t-shirt. I I love that band. So my recommendation is a uh, group that I saw for the first time on New Year's Eve in Denver. They 
blew the lid off the place. Uh, they're called the Yoppers. They're out of Denver. New album out last year called American Man. Uh, and it might strike people at first as kind of redneck noise, but it's it's really smart and powerfully driven guitar rock. Uh, two guys playing acoustic guitars through pedals, one of them playing aggressive slide. And the title track, which might sound a little regressive, is actually this really smart uh, investigation of how somebody gets radicalized into violence. Uh, maybe despite their own best interest and definitely despite their own inclination. I'm not a violent man and they've already won But I'm bringing the plague, I'm bringing the guns They won't stand with me, the damn shall run Remember the words of America's son So, hope you enjoy it, uh, hope you check it out and uh, play it loud. Thanks again, guys. My name is Bill Rittler from Bristol, PA. It's where we did the Bristol stomp. Um, just calling about that Jason Narducci, what he said about the Ramones. He is so on with that. When I first started hearing the Ramones in 1980 or so, it just changed everything. I was already an adult at the time, but I latched onto it right away, and I've been listening to this stuff ever since. That Ramones medley from Rock and Roll High School is definitely the best ever. Thanks, guys. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.